I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to the Shakti Hour, a podcast on the Be Here Now Network, where I speak with women about their personal experience on the spiritual path. My name is Melanie, and today I'm sharing a conversation with one of my all-time favorite writers, Terry Tempest Williams. Terry's most recent book, The Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks, has just been uh, released on paperback, and she is touring this summer, uh, giving readings and book signings across the country. I highly recommend you check out her website to see if you might be able to attend one of these near you. In the meantime, please enjoy this inspirational, moving, and a profound conversation that we shared about wilderness, spirit, sacred rage, and authentic power. Please uh, do go to the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com where you'll find our Amazon link to purchase Terry's books and also please do subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes. And thanks very much for listening. I really appreciate you coming in to talk with me. And thank you so much for this book, The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks all the work you put into visiting these sites and sharing your experience with us. It, if I never make it to Big Bend, which I haven't, <laughs> I feel like I will have visited just through the reading of this book. You know, if someone were to say, what is the heart of the Hour of Land? It would be Big Bend. It was absolutely my most favorite place. And it undid me in the best of ways. And I've, I've said to the people I love, if I ever disappear, it will be there. Yeah, yeah, that that definitely, definitely struck me. It it created in me just the whole book created in me a longing for that experience. What was the time frame that you did the 
the visits? You know, in some instances, Melanie, um, it's been all my life. In other instances, like Big Band, I was there a month, and it felt like no time at all. And then in the case of Effigy Mounds, I had read a statistic where the average visitor to a national park spends 2.36 days. And that's how long we stayed in Effigy Mounds. I wanted to see, you know, what what kind of experience you have in 2.36 days. And I found out it can be rather deep. You know, it's just, um, it's a matter of attention. I mean, certainly how, you know, I, I keep thinking of Henry David Thoreau on his 200th anniversary when he says, how deep is Walden Pond? And he says, as deep as we are. And so I think it's, as you know better than anyone, we bring our whole selves to every experience. And with each national park, I tried to bring my my whole being and first and foremost, listen, and then go where where my heart led me. Right. Yeah. Following the heart into the land. Your recent, the book right before this, When Women Were Birds. Yes. I'm going to read a bit from that. Earth, mother, goddess. In every culture, the voice of the feminine emerges from the land itself. She can shift shapes like the wind and cut through stone with her voice like water. She is not to be classified. She is not to be controlled. She is the one who embodies the moon, honoring the cyclic nature of life. In this, in this moment of this desire to grab these sacred lands and twist them around and make them into something malleable for business or more economy or more expansion. How does that relate in to you in this, in the feminine, like in the relation to the feminine and the earth mother? What a great question. Um, I mean, the first thing that comes into my mind is you ask that question just instinctively is sacred rage. You know, I, I'm so angry and I don't want to be angry, but then I think maybe that's what we know as women, that this ferocity when someone or something we love is at risk. And I feel that acutely. I feel it in every cell of my body. And the only way I can manage this is to take this anger and try and transform it into sacred rage where I can be of use. I can take that focused energy that is so fiery and, and turn it into water. Um, so every day I'm mindful of acts of alchemy. Um, but that's what comes into my mind as you talk about that. You know, on August 26th, um, the current president of our United States, and I can hardly bear his name, um, signed an executive order to rescind or reduce 27 national monuments, Bears Ears National Monument among them in Utah. The first national monument, Melanie, as you know, that has been driven by the vision of the tribes, in this case, Navajo, Hopi, Zuni, and the two Ute nations. The first time that a president has said, we hear you, and we will create a collaborative structure 
a cooperative management between the tribes and the United States government the first time. And everyone was so thrilled that the, the elders had been heard that these are sacred lands. These are where the bones of our ancestors live. This is where our ceremonies are held. This is where our medicines are, are culled. And then four months later, we have a president who knows nothing of these lands, who takes as his mentor Andrew Jackson, who was known as Indian Killer, um, and, and sets his henchman um, Ryan Zinke out to review these monuments. Secretary of the Interior Zinke came out to Utah for five days. He gave the tribes one hour, one hour in Salt Lake City, Utah, in a federal building, a room with no windows, one hour. He and his entourage flew down to southern Utah to Bears Ears. They were met by a county commissioner, county commissioner's right of the Tea Party, met them with five horses and five white hats that said, make San Juan County great again. Or in fact, Rob Bishop among them. They went into Bears Ears. He came back, said, it's too big. But the subtext was, it's not big enough for the oil and gas industry. That's what we're up against. So I do feel sacred rage, and I feel this direct assault on our public commons um, requires a direct action. What is a direct action? I think it's really looking at the gifts which are ours and giving them up in the name of community, each in our own way, each in our own time, in the places we call home. What do you think it is that allows for this separation. I mean, I love that you just told that story that they, the meeting, this tiny amount of time in a room with no windows, what, what motivates that? Like, why, why are you and I able to see this beauty, to embrace it and desire to protect it? And another person is, wants to be in that room with no windows. I wish I knew. You know, I mean, I want to say they're afraid, but then I don't think they're even conscious enough to be afraid. I think that they are so enveloped in in a different kind of power, a power over rather than a power from or a power with, that it is so much a model based on patriarchy and hierarchy and economy around I mean, money's too too easy. It's 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 an economy of destruction. Hmm. Whereas I think, and I also think it's about spiritual beliefs. You know, Orrin Hatch, um, in in his case, you know, the earth is for our taking, and it's a it's a religious fervor. And why why would you protect land that is oil rich? You know, why not make America great again and energy sufficient? If you don't believe in climate change then I would argue you don't believe in death. You believe in eternal life and onward and upward to heaven. Earth has no bearing. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think for so many of us, earth is enough. Earth is more than enough. And we don't think in a vertical line moving upward, but we see ourselves in circles and cycles, interrelated, interconnected. So I think it's really two worldviews. And you have that, I mean, you're in your personal story, in your family, you have, it, am I right, your father worked in oil? Absolutely. He, and 
four generations laying pipe that natural gas flows through. And if he were in our conversation, he would say that he's proud of those scars that he's made on the land, that it's enabled homes to be heated and people to cook their food. Mm. So, But he also had, you, you tell a story in here too about going to one of the parks with him, like he also had this appreciation for the beauty and the the rest of the landscape. He loves the land and he's living with the land. And I think the thing that got my father when we went up to the Balkan and at that point it was, um, what was it, 2014, 2015, um, a million barrels a day were coming out of the Balkan oil field. And he wanted to see the men and they were largely men. And he asked every man he saw in these man camps, which were basically storage units, kicked in out of rage and frustration and isolation. He, every man, he said, who signs your paycheck? Have you ta- who's your boss? Have you ever talked to him? No man could tell my father who signed his paycheck. No man had ever met the so-called boss. Why? Because they were corporate. They were multinationals. Hmm. Um, and my father said, they care nothing for you. You're a body. You're expendable. And ironically, my own brother, my father's son, um, went up to the Balkan hoping that he would, would come back rich. He came back shattered. Hmm. So it's the one thing I think they have miscalculated is the size of our hearts, hmm. the depth of our friendship. And I would, I would say the prayers of, of indigenous people. Hmm. Can you tell me a bit more about what is sacred rage? Like, what is sacred rage? And how how do I make my rage sacred <laughs> if it just feels like plain rage or defeat or exhaustion? Do, maybe it's all those things. I mean, it's certainly the full breadth of our emotion, the full range. But I think for me, it has something to do with creation. Um, in times of war, we create. In times of loss, we create. In times of love, we create. And that's where I think it goes back to our gifts. You know, how can I take this energy, this rage, and make use of it? Hmm. I write. If you ask me what have I written in this past year, it's largely been opinion pieces, op-ed pieces, you know, that appear on Sunday, and by Sunday night, a puppy's peeing on it. You know, or Monday morning it's wrapping fish. Um, that we're in the moment. We are present. And we are direct. We are honest. We are loving. We were, you know, it's, it's Ramdas. When, you know, I remember when my mother was dying, his book, How Can I Help, was so important to me. And I remember a line, the question, how do we live in love with a broken heart? To me, that's part of sacred rage. Hmm. The, the, the knowledge that we lose nothing by loving hmm. and to be fierce with our love, to not avert our gaze, to recognize that bearing witness is not a passive act, but an act of conscience, consciousness, and consequence. And I think if we're present in the moment, then we know the, 
the next appropriate act. I mean, how would you define sacred rage? How do you understand sacred rage in your life? You know, I'm, I'm not sure it's entered into rage yet for me, how you're describing it, having a place to go. I think that's part of it. I feel like that, that energy needs, needs a channel to go into. And, and without that channel, it, it hasn't yet developed its full force within me, you know? So it's something that, um, I'm present to, but also, also in awe of the sacred rage or the, the divine feminine rage that is, is coming now, the mother earth, that that power is unstoppable regardless so that force is coming on its own anyway, whether, whether we do or the, or the ocean waters do, you know, this, this pipeline will be stopped, right? Either the earthquake will or, or, or those of us who are present will stop this from happening, right? I think at this moment, I'm more in awe of the power of that energy of that rage than in the actual expression of it myself. That's a really good point. You know, I think it's spiritual. I think it's spiritual too. You know, more and more, I mean, yes, these issues we're talking about are political. Um, and yes, we understand that they're ecological. But I think ultimately, as a human being, for me, they are spiritual. And, you know, it's that, that paradox of, of how do we stand with with grace and yet still hold that that fierce attention i don't know i mean i think that's you know that's my practice right now and it's it's absolutely grounded in the red rock desert of southern utah and as you say in the earth yeah all over the world you're in Switzerland right now, is that right? I'm in France. Oh, you're in France. Yeah. And what are you seeing? What are you feeling regarding these issues? Well, you know, France, the Paris, I'm in Paris, and Paris itself is so beautiful. There isn't wilderness here, though, mm. you know? Well, yeah. So a friend of, a new friend of mine and has a, a beautiful place in the, in the Loire Valley, and he's American who has been trying to kind of cultivate this wilderness idea and it's very foreign but the appreciation of beauty is like right. cellular right you know? so i can't imagine what it would be in reflection to you know the grand canyon or zion national park if that was here i mean when i think of paris i do think of beauty and how beauty mm -hmm. is its own form of resistance. I remember being in Paris in December and I met a friend who is a tea master and he said, Terry, do you want to be part of a tea ceremony with me in Paris? And I said, oh, I would love that. And I met him at the National Archives mm. in, there's that little teeny park there. And we just found this square for two people and he set up his tea ceremony, and for two hours, watching the sun come up, we, we drank tea. And I have to tell you, the feeling I had 
in the National Archives in Paris in that small square of green, drinking tea, there was a spirit of wildness there. Hmm. Granted, it's not the Grand Canyon. It's not Canyonlands. It's not Yellowstone. But the essence of wildness, which to me is wholeness and harmony and paradox and hmm. ultimately creation, was present there. And I want to share with your permission, yeah. um, came to my mind. I've never shared this. Hmm. I've never read it publicly. Hmm. Um, but somehow, intuitively, it feels right. This is an excerpt from visiting Alcatraz with Tim de Christopher, who had just gotten out of prison for two years for committing an act of civil disobedience um, by bidding up oil and gas leases to fair market value that were going for $2 an acre to oil and gas companies. And we were in um, a particular area where in Alcatraz, they, it was the infirmary, the hospital, where, where really if you were, had gone mad, that's where they would take you. And if you weren't mad, you were by the time you left. And that energy was very present. Freedom is a word like love or health that teeters on the edge of cliché until you don't have one or the other and you wish like hell that you did. I think about Brighton Breitenbach, who was jailed in South Africa. He tells the story of a ritual that developed in his prison. The night before an execution, the prisoner about to die would sing, and his voice could be heard by the other prisoners. The quality of our listening changed, Breitenbach said. There are hopey chants being piped into this chamber of nightmares. Ai Weiwei, the Chinese dissident artist, had sound recordings from the Hopi Eagle Dance installed in one of the rooms as part of his installation. While next door, and simultaneously, you could hear Tibetan chants from the monastery in Dharmasala, India. The Hopi chants wash over us like rain in the desert. Often subjugated people, marginalized people, indigenous people from around the world have been viewed as insane when their views and their voices are simply different from those in power. This cell, this music, the Hopi voices rise and fall in the asylum like breath, like wings, an eagle circling above the prison. This is my definition of resilience, when the penetralia of a people emerges in place as prayer. The light deepens further. We find ourselves standing in darkness, touching what feels melancholic and sublime. The longer we stay, the more hypnotic the chants become. They seep into our bloodstream. They slow our pulses down until I feel myself back home in the desert. My headache is gone. I have been to the Hopi mesas, and I have witnessed Crow Mother on the morning of the bean dance walking among the pueblos, holding out her basket of corn as an offering to the dawn, keening for the sorrows of the world. Somehow I think that has to do with what we're talking about. The divine feminine, whether it's crow mother, whether it's Kali, whether it's changing woman, whether it's you and I talking together, continents apart, Modernity has, has subjugated us into cells, and I, I believe we are going mad without even recognizing what we have lost. And wildness brings us back to that center 
what the Navajo called Hosho, balance. Hmm. And how does wildness do that? I think it reminds us that we are not the only species that lives and breathes and grieves and loves on the planet. Whether it's, whether it's a bison in Yellowstone, whether it's a cup of tea from, from Puer in China, whether it's the quality of light in Paris. We remember we are something, we are a part, part of something so much larger than ourselves. You know, it's just an infinite source of joy. And when you see what's happening, yes, the sorrow is there, but, but you know, I remember when my mother was dying. I remember when my grandmothers were dying. I remember when my brother was dying. To be present with them, even in the heartbreak, was joy. And is that maybe the root of it, that... Uh people don't want to be present? You know, that's the question, isn't it? Um, we don't have to feel. And if we don't have to feel, we don't have to be present, and we don't have to confront that which asks us to change. Yeah. And I think what is required from all of us right now is that we change. That we change our consciousness, we change our minds, we we change our habits, and that is not easy. And we're all complicit. You know, we're all part of this machine. I was just reading Thoreau, and I love in his um, essay, Civil Disobedience, when he says, you know, throw a wrench into the machine. And I thought, okay, what does that really mean, you know? Mm. And I think it's, it, the wrenches, to me, are tools of creativity. You know, what is it that, that we do that, that can make a small difference in the world? And how, how does this this spiritual transformation work in your life? Or how has it worked over time, this change that you're talking about? What's your own experience of this transformation or spiritual awakening or new consciousness? I wish I could tell you. You know, I wish I could say that I knew anything. Um, what I do know, and it's not very evolved at all, is that most of the changes I've made in my life were over loss, were over um, difficulties. You know, I wish I didn't need that to move me to the next level. I wish that, it, that my transformation could come through um, beauty. Maybe it has, you know, I don't know. I mean, I remember going out to the oil spill um, in the Gulf when the BP oil spill had saturated everything. Um, people, cultures, and the wild when BP oil spill, you know, the BP companies, the, the CEOs, put a price on the value of, of a pelican's life. Hmm. I mean, nine million years of perfection, evolutionary perfection. And I, I think they said it was... $143.22. You know, it's mad. It's complete insanity. And I remember going up with this barefoot pilot 800 feet above uh, the Macondo well when Obama and Carol Browner had said, everything's fine. You know, the oil's being absorbed. The dispersants are working. No worries. 
everything wasn't fine for as far as I could see, as wide as I could bear it, oil. But he told a story. He said that when it first happened and the ocean was in flames, he saw a pod of dolphins side by side by side standing on the edge of those flames, watching, wondering, waiting. I mean, that haunts me still. And I guess the thing that I learned in myself from, from those weeks in the oil spill, it wasn't the oil that undid me. It wasn't even the saturated pelicans that broke my heart, although I held them and wept. It was the beauty that remained. It was those white-beaded islands that had not been touched yet, of the birds that innocently went about their lives not knowing what was coming. You know, for me, that's a spiritual moment where I have to become larger than I am or I won't survive. Hmm. And what does that feel like? How does that becoming larger than you, you are, how do you source that? I remember we landed and again, I've not shared this. But for four days, all I did was heave. I threw up every single thing in my being until I was absolutely empty and couldn't move. You know, and it's just day by day, right? Taking it in, letting it go, loving again. And then, no matter what we do, you know, we're, we're part of it. You know, I remember just weeping over these creatures going out to this island, you know, looking at these saturated hermit crabs and moving them from one place to another, trying to, you know, quote unquote, save them. We leave. I, I, I pick up my bag. I go home. I undo my bag, put everything out, and I realize there's a shell, you know, and I thought, I don't remember picking up the shell, but it's beautiful. And I put it on my altar. And then about two hours later, I was just, I had a candle lit and I was focusing on the altar and that shell moved. It had legs. And I realized, oh my God, it's a hermit crab. I've completely destroyed this hermit crab in my attempt to so-called save them. <laughs> Here I one home. And what you know, and so I remember putting it in the tub, trying to create this wave action, putting in salt. It was so pathetic. And the only thing I could do is the next morning, you know, I went out as far as I could go and found a beach that wasn't oiled and and put the, the hermit crab back there. But the hermit crab was displaced by me, you know, so just rot with hypocrisy, right? I am. Well, it may have been a, a moment of grace in that hermit crab's life. Who knows? <laughs> so it's just, again, I know nothing. All I know is mm. to be as fully awake, alive, and alert in the moment mm. as we can. Mm. And to stick to your practice and, and your practice rooted in your gifts. I really like that you're, you're drawing it back to each of our individual gifts and for me, that's something that's been really coming up through this whole moment of transformation and people reaching out for help is what is your call? Like, what is it? What is your heart saying that you need to respond to? You want to show up for right now. 
and that that is that's your gift now you funnel your energy you know into that what, what would you say one of your gifts is at this moment that you're aware of well i'm very passionate about peace and disarmament through my own spiritual practice through the experience of peace within me I believe that it's possible now. So I'm in a place of b true belief that it's a so beautiful a way that we can live. And so that has been the thing that is calling me the most. And reading this book and, and connecting, reconnecting with you in this moment has been so cathartic because I feel this pull to the land as well, but my energy can't be in both places. So to, to your point, it's so valuable that you're as deeply engaged, you know, with your talent, with your calling, so that I can be free to being engaged in my talent. Yeah. I'm so grateful for you and your voice hmm. and that you are sharing my voice. You know, it's it's that nature of, of reciprocity, which is another gift of yours. And that we have this shared community with John Elder that deepens it. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed, especially with women, is that we are so taught to, at least I will say I was taught in my religious upbringing as, as Mormon, um, that you don't talk about your gifts, that you don't talk about your talents. You you deflect, you demure, you step to the side um, and serve. And I think it's hard for us as women to say, this is my gift. And I think it's, it's crucial that we do. Otherwise, we're so isolated. And, you know, I just got back from China, and I was so moved by, by what we saw and felt and experienced. And again, the full range of emotion, the paradoxes. The thing that was the most um, disturbing to me in these cells of high rises, that it, I just thought one wind would knock them all over in a dominoes. You know, it just felt, it felt absolutely inhuman and antithetical to life. Um, people literally living in cells, concrete, um, 30, 40 stories high, you know, 22 million people in a very small space with air that is not breathable. You know, how is it that we can maintain any semblance of humanity in conditions like that? Hmm. And yet, we do. Hmm. Do we really? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I, the people I met, yeah. you know, I, I have dinner in their homes, in their apartments. And they're living and they're thriving and many of them were activists. One woman in particular, you know, she had a perch. It reminded me of being a peregrine falcon on a, a cliff face. And, you know, together with her community people, they literally organized along the new river, the last flowing river in China, and they stopped the dam. And they shaped the government to the point where the government's only way of saving face was to make it a national park. Yes, they're living, hmm. thriving, hmm. but at what cost? I guess that's my question. Hmm. But it's also my value judgment, but I would die. I, I couldn't do it. 
you know, the, I think one of the reasons my perception, as narrow as it is, is that the reason why the Chinese government is is concerned about climate change is because if they don't deal with it, and their air and the burning of fossil fuels and coal, they are going to have a revolution on their hands because people are dying mm-hmm. and children are sick, and there are whole cancer cities based on on this kind of of pollution. And that affects all of us. Yeah. And the trash that they're burning is ours. You know, so we're right there in the middle of it. Um, and again, I, that spider web that we're in, you know, you pluck one strand and the whole web vibrates. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, congratulations on your uh, the Harvard Divinity School. That's going to be a wonderful uh, time time there for you. But there, uh, there was a quote from the website there which I wept as soon as I read this sentence. Williams will spend time contemplating and writing about the spiritual implications of climate change. Can you say more about that? The spiritual implications of climate change, like specifically? I have to say, when you read that back to me, my heart just dropped. I have, I have no idea. You know, it's... I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> but it's but, guess you're going to spend time contemplating and writing about that. So that's what you're about to do. You haven't done that yet. So you're you're going to do that. <laughs> no idea. I mean, seriously, it's what I'm interested in, and I I yeah. want to listen. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, a man named Uncle. He goes by, by Uncle. He's an elder in Greenland. And he has these wind drums, and he chants between these drums, and you're taken to a far-off place. And, you know, I don't know how many countries he's traveled in talking about climate in Greenland and what they are losing. And I saw him in February, and and speak to us about what it is that keeps you both grounded in a flooding landscape and moving around the world, sharing your story so that others might know the truth of this moment. And to to me, he represents the spiritual knowledge that is coming. Um, And I'm hearing that largely from indigenous people. Mm. So in so many ways, I feel like our greatest task right now is listening. I mean, the, the I'm originally from South Dakota, so the the Standing Rock movement was so exciting for me. Uh, I was living in New York at the time that that was happening, and um, and it was interesting because I I'm I was raised Lutheran, you know, in a town, <laughs> but I developed this deep connection to the 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 Black Hills, and you know, loved exploring the the Lakota culture to the best of my ability. And so when this was happening at Standing Rock and the prayers were happening and the, you know, all the ceremonies and back in New York, I was leading some meditations kind of in conjunction with that. And it really struck me how um, many of these people had no context for the value of prayer in this 
culture. And I was like, that's why this is successful. <laughs> this is a successful strong movement because it's rooted in that, because that's where it began. And, um, and they were just as, you know, their hearts went out and were engaged, but didn't have the context that the strength was coming from right. this devotion to the great spirit. Right. I think that's such a powerful point. And again, it goes back to our individual callings. You know, I remember, I mean, so many friends of mine went to Standing Rock as allies. And I know some of the elders there. And I remember talking to one of them saying, you know, how can I help? What can I do? And the elders said, stay home and pray. And I took that really seriously. And I, I echo and honor what you're saying about the faith of prayer, the, the power of that collective energy. Mm -hmm. I don't underestimate it for a minute. Mm -hmm. And did you feel like you needed to, to have from them a prayer? Or did you draw on your, your, your Mormon faith? Or uh, what, is that, what is prayer for you? Or what was prayer for you in that moment? Um, I made an altar in the desert uh, where we live. I burned sage every morning and said prayers and just um, sunrise and sunset, I focused my energy their direction and just held that space of silence and intention. Hmm. Is that a regular yes. practice for you otherwise? You know, not in that focused way where I really did every sunrise, sunset during that period. I can't say it is. I wish I could tell you it was. But I think I'm on another level. I think I'm, I, I, prayer is always my companion. Let me put it that way. I, I want to go back to this, the awe and read another quote. Awe is the moment when ego surrenders to wonder. This is our inheritance, the beauty before us. We cry, we cry out. There is nothing sentimental about facing the desert bare. It is a terrifying beauty. You're writing best about Big Bend. And to me, that's the perfect description of awakening itself or a spiritual transformation or religious experience or mystical experience. I think I asked this in another way before, but I'm going to ask again, just is this really what the the developer, or the, the oil man or the defense contractor is working against? Like facing that wholeness. Is it, are they working against it? Are we in favor of whole, like... <laughs> I mean, because you, you could know, say I, that a nuclear bomb creates awe, uh, right. and there's I mean, a, a surrender, but but this is different. This terrifying beauty. You know, I just keep thinking of my father. You know, who again made his living by laying pipe and and. You know, being part of the, the natural gas machine, I mean, I was raised 
and benefited from that. And something shifted in him, and I think it was grief. I think it was the grief of losing his wife. I think it was the grief of losing his son. I think it was the grief of of seeing the American West that was always wild and open and, and free, suddenly subjugated by the infrastructure of of oil and gas lines everywhere you looked with a scale and rapidity that was not humane. Um, my father was a hunter, you know. After my mother died, he never picked up his gun again. So I, I think, you know, what opens our hearts to see beyond ourselves, to see beyond our own um, greed? And what allows us to slow down to really feel mm. and you know I, I keep thinking what would move Donald Trump and I have no doubt that that he is movable and I think is it his son Baron that he that he can't talk about is it watching all of his children now you know mm. being taken down because of a lack of integrity I mean what in the end will move him even move him out of office. You know, I think about that. Mm. I think about what is it that Orrin Hatch hates so violently that he would destroy those beautiful lands that actually are fueling the Utah economy. Is it because he's owing companies? Is it because it was revenge? Because he lost a fight and this is his last cry, you know, of 40 years as a senator? I don't know. I mean, somehow, Melanie, I, I have to believe that there is that soft spot in us as human beings that we had when we were born. You know, right here, where the lights of our haven't closed yet. And I just keep thinking, where's the soft spot that we, where's the soft spot where we hold each other close? Mm. Where's the opening we can hear one another again? Right, and then how to stay tender, because like you said, the the revenge. There's one, one way of grief, is that opening and and surrender and continual softening. And another thing that can happen. Is to, that'll never happen to me again, right? I'm and you know, maybe, that, yeah, exactly. And maybe it's. It's coming to understand what true power is. Mm -hmm. Not power over, but a power with. And so, you know, maybe sacred rage, making a full circle in our conversation, is embracing our authentic power in whatever form it takes in the moment at hand. Mm -hmm. And with, with compassion and wisdom knowing it will disturb, it will disrupt, it will make people uncomfortable. Hmm. Yeah, there's a quote from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan Buddhist. The, the ideal of warriorship is that the warrior should be sad and tender, and because of that, the warrior can be very brave as well. You know, when I think about the people who I see as courageous in my life, they would not see themselves that way. But when I look at what they have in common, it would be a sustained focus. And maybe that's really what presence is, that if we are fully present in the moment at hand, 
then we will know the next step that is required of us. And that really is where I base my hope. There is no hope without action. And being present is an action. Hmm. And a courageous action, too. Yeah. Yeah. Again, to not avert our gaze. And keep the heart open. I was just going to, I was just thinking that, you know, to live (laughs) with a broken heart. And I'm so grateful for the openness of your heart, Melanie. What a gift to have this hour together. Thank you, Terry. It was such a pleasure. And I wish you great fortitude and continued strength and success as you. you. And the same to you. And if I make it to Paris, let's have tea together. Oh, please. I would love that. Well, you'll have your year in Paris and I'll have my year at the Divinity School and we'll have to talk again and see what we both. Great. All right. Bless you. And when I see John, I'll give him a big hug from you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Terry. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.